It's Friday, November 11th, 2022, Veterans Day, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy and environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, election day, as many of you noticed, was Tuesday. Um, all the Democrats holding state office cruised to victory. Governor Newsom won re-election, uh, beating State Senator Brian Dolly um, by nearly 60% of the vote. Attorney General Rob Bonta, Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis, Secretary of State Shirley Weber, and U.S. Senator Alex Padilla all beat their opponents at similar margins. Coming in a bit closer is our colleague Lan Hee Chen at just under 47% of the vote against his opponent, Malia Cohen, who has 54%. Uh, this race isn't over yet. Um, there was really no surprise congressional gains by Republicans, which underscores the difficulty for GOP candidates to win in the Golden State. Uh, Lanny is behind Bill, but was he able to at least crack some of this code in winning uh, statewide politics in yeah, California? So so what's this thing about this race, Lee and Jonathan, is uh, you know, almost every Democrat, you know, every other Democrat you mentioned won, and rather predictably, and you see the same margin on the Democratic side, the Republican side. And on the GOP side, each of the statewide candidates clocked in at about 42% to 43%, uh, very little derivation among them. So this just shows you that people just voted party line on both sides. But then you get to the controller's race, Lon Chen running for state controller against uh, Malia Cohen, a Democrat. <clears throat> and uh, I checked the uh, Secretary of State's website uh, this morning. Uh, Lon He is at 46.4%. So he's about three and a half to four points above the rest of the Republican field. Uh, it's a difference of about 200,000 votes. So what does it say? This says that it's possible for Republicans to push closer to 50%. Um, it also shows uh, what happens when you run a very good diligent race. Lonnie, to his credit, uh, did not mail in this race, as a lot of people do oftentimes. So they run for statewide office. I figure I don't have a snowball's chance anyway, so I'm just not going to run that hard. But he did. I mean, he wore out a lot of shoes, I think, walking around the state and meeting people. Um, he raised money diligently, and he ran a real earnest campaign. So he pushed closer to 50% than the early Republicans did. But here's the problem in a nutshell. When the baseline vote as a Republican in California is at 42 to 43%, you're pretty much sunk down ticket. And uh, it's interesting as we look at California, uh, you look, for example, at New York State, you look at uh, Pennsylvania on election night. Republicans had a very bad night in Pennsylvania. Um for a lot of reasons, one of which was their gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano, was just a disaster. I think he got about 42 or 43% of the vote. But then you go over to New York State, and there you have Lee Zeldin running for uh, governor. What a what a nice candidate in Lee. How about that, Mr. Hanian? Uh, can't go wrong there. Uh, but Mr. Zeldin ran a very strong campaign. He ran on one issue, which was crime. He lost by five points, but in a very overwhelmingly blue state like California – and what he did was he provided a lift down ticket, and so he saw Republicans pick up four House seats. So this is the challenge for Republicans moving forward. It's not just getting good candidates like Lon He Chen on the ballot. Um, there has to be a horse atop the rider because right now California Republicans are a riderless horse. And so that is 
That is the big question moving forward for Republicans. Can they find somebody at the top of the ticket who could run competitively and not bury the rest of the field, you know, with only 42 to 43 percent of the vote? Yeah, Bill, it's, it's interesting. Um, Chen, in my opinion, is a very strong candidate. Uh, I agree with you. He ran a really strong campaign and he received a lot of support within statewide media. He was endorsed by a number of newspapers. Um, it's hard to find any Republicans that uh, that were being endorsed by San Jose Mercury. Um, by, Lee, Lee he, got endor- he got endorsed by the Los Angeles Times, Lee, which just doesn't happen. I worked for Pete Wilson when he was governor of California in a past life. I was there when Wilson ran for re-election in 1994. If not the highlight of Pete Wilson's political career, one of the most satisfying moments was when the Los Angeles Times grudgingly, reluctantly endorsed him for re-election. And so you're right, for a candidate like Lonhi to get media support in California shows you that he ran a very smart, earnest campaign talking about policy, not personality. Yeah, yeah. It was clear. uh, It was clear what his vision was. It was clear he was remarkably well qualified. Mm -hmm. The media did see the value of him uh, being elected. And yet when we look at the outcome bill, um, it's disappointing. He squeaked he squeaked in for what another another what maybe four percentage points over mm-hmm. what the average Republicans are getting. So, right. from my perspective, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's very disappointing. Um, um, yeah, your your views about up ticket down ticket. Um, Brian Dale is getting what about 40 percent, forty one percent, and this is a candidate um, who had who had raised about two million dollars. Uh, for the race. Um, so, you know, we're kind of in a catch-22 in California. Um, Republicans uh, obviously are coming to the plate with two strikes. Bill, you're a baseball guy, so I th- I'll, throw in, I'll throw in that analogy. Thank you. Uh, and maybe not only just two strikes, but an unfriendly umpire behind the plate. And, um, and they're not winning. <clears throat> and then we've got, uh, and we've got Republican donors, uh, particularly, you know, the, the national, at the national level, they simply won't invest in California because Republicans don't win, so they don't invest. <clears throat> and Republicans can't win without additional investment. Um, uh, fascinating comparison with New York, mm-hmm. where I think one one issue that differs between the two states, obviously both are overwhelmingly Democrat. Um, New York has been economically struggling for a longer period of time than California. Um, so I think there are people, particularly outside of Manhattan, that have just been having a, a, a really hard time for decades. Um, yeah. We haven't seen that as much in California, but Perhaps another year or two or three of that, we will see those changes. But um, but it's incredibly disappointing that a candidate like uh, Chen um, is kind of get is kind of getting the forty percent, forty one percent, and then maybe another five percentage points for running such a great campaign and getting an awful lot of support in the media, and just can't get over the hill. Well, Lee, he was paddling against the stream in this regard. Lonhi's campaign was very much trying to draw attention to how poorly California government is run because that's the job of the state controller at the end of the day to oversee how government is managed, to audit and just you know do quality control assessments. We didn't have a policy conversation in California, though, Lee, at least not among the candidates running for statewide office. I mean, look at the New York governor's race again, where Zeldin ran strongly on crime. Go down to go down to Georgia, Lee, where Brian Kemp, the incumbent governor, ran very hard on his record. He said, look what I've done in terms of election reform. Look 
Look what I've done in terms of handling COVID. Look what I've done with the economy. Go further south into Florida. Ron DeSantis, who is now the flavor of the moment in Republican circles. What did he run on? He ran on his record. He ran on what he did in terms of education during COVID. He ran on how he handled the COVID matter in terms of businesses. He ran on his handling of the hurricane. Um, Again, running on his record. Same deal for Greg Abbott in Texas. But out here in California, our governor did not do the same. And before we go too deep into our obligatory Gavin Newsom bashing, I mean, Gavin Newsom got about 57.5% of the vote, which really shows you immediately how you can just kind of mail it in in the state right now as a Democratic incumbent. Now, granted, the governor's job is pretty much safe anyway. The last incumbent governor, first-term incumbent governor to get tossed was Colbert Olson in 1942. So we tend to give first-term governors a second, second time around. Newsom did not run any single ads talking about his record to the extent that he was on TV, and we'll get to this in a moment. Uh, it was uh, advocating pro or con on a couple of ballot measures, but he didn't get up there and say, here's what I did on COVID. Here's what I've done for schools. Here's what I've done on homelessness. All those things went by the wayside. And so in some regards, Lee, if you want a serious policy conversation, that got shoved down the road to 2026. And that's a shame as far as California is concerned. Well, it really is. Um, it really is. And Bill, you know, I saw a survey recently that was comparing road voting uh, by party, uh, and what and what the, and what I mean by that is, you know, back in the day, how many people would just pull the lever if you were a Democrat, if you just pulled the lever for Democrats, and if you were Republican, you just pulled the lever for Republicans. Um, now, now it's now it's road voting is becoming the norm. Um, we need we need. We need voters in California to actually think more deeply about the issues and think about the candidates who they're voting for. Um, and that's just not happening right now. If it was, I think you would, I think Lonnie would have gotten over, I think Lonnie wouldn't have gotten over the, uh, the top of the hill. Um, but it's, uh, but it's shocking to me the number of votes that really, in my opinion, deficient candidates or those who simply think that they've already been elected as a foregone conclusion um, and simply are doing absolutely nothing to advertise what they've contributed and where they'll, where they'll be taking the state in the future. Um, it's very, I mean, it's, it's, it's demoralizing, in my opinion. So, Lee, I think two things have to happen here. Uh, one is you're going to have to have the statewide equivalent of a Rick Caruso uh, running at the top of the ticket. Mr. Caruso, uh, the billionaire who is uh, running for Los Angeles, we'll get to that in a minute, too. That race is uh, still sitting out there with a lot of votes to be counted. Uh, but he put about $100 billion of his own money into the race, at more than probably $100 billion by the time everything is settled. Uh, ran very hard on homelessness and status quo policies in Los Angeles and uh, you know made quite an inroad there. He may come up short, uh, but he ran a pretty strong race. So you need somebody of the resources, I think, Lee and Jonathan, to at least you know kind of drive a policy conversation. Then secondly, you're going to have to do independent expenditures. This is one thing that was missing in Lonnie's campaign. He raised money, yes, but he needed an independent expenditure to come in and do some work for him. And by that, I mean an outside group, not aligned with the with the candidate, but at least kind of advocating what the candidate stands for, You know, providing a television campaign to give some backdrop to the candidate and give him attention, to give his causes attention. So until you get things like that in this state, I just think we're going to keep going along with these races where the Democrats are going to get a minimum of 57%, the Republicans going to be buried down at 43%, as we rather cynically saw in this cycle, not much is going to get talked about. No, no. And, um, you know, Bill, when we when we were looking at the governor numbers, um, I mean, Dolly had literally had $2 million to spend. I mean, that's nothing. Uh, that's, that's literally nothing. And as late as September, I think only two out of 10 voters polled had even heard of him. 
Yep. So I was, I was worried he was going to get stuck somewhere in the 30s, maybe in the low 30s. So, um, you know, we can call the glass 60% full or 40% empty for Newsom, But the fact that Dolly looks like he's getting over 40%, I think is, um, I think is not particularly good news for Gavin. No, it's not. Gentlemen, let's look at the slate of initiatives on this year's ballot. Uh, Proposition 1, uh, which called for adding the right to an abortion uh, and to contraception in the state constitution, was passed with 65% of the vote. Uh, we talked about Proposition 27 on a previous podcast. Uh, this would have legalized online sports betting for adults 21 and older via platforms that have agreements with Native American tribes. This initiative was, uh, was crushed by 83% of the voters. The initiative that went down in the most perplexing fashion was uh, Proposition 30. Uh, this would have raised taxes for billionaires to provide incentives for the manufacturing of vehicles, as well as building of infrastructure and funding for wildfire prevention. Uh, the governor was against it, uh, presumably as we talked on this program, because Lyft supported Proposition 22. Uh, Prop 22 was ultimately successful. It was an ultimately successful ballot initiative that carved out an exemption for rideshare companies under Assembly Bill 5 that would have required Lyft and Uber uh, to classify their drivers as employees rather than as independent contractors. Cal Matters Ben Christopher writes that the governor's aggressive campaigning against Prop 30 played a significant role in its demise, but so did the coalitions that coalesced for it and against it. Uh, Christopher writes that on the yes side, environmentalists and trade unions joined Lyft, and on the no side, teachers unions joined the California Republican Party, the State Chamber of Commerce, and the Howard Jarvis Taxpayer Association. Christopher quoted Paul Mitchell, a pollster of Political Data Inc., as saying, quote, confusion is the best friend of the no side. You don't have to even win the argument. You just have to muddy the waters. Uh, gentlemen, will this experience have any impact on companies considering challenging the governor and his allies uh, through the initiative process? I don't think so in this regard. It, uh, If you're a California business and you want to stop something the legislature has done, this is your only recourse. And Lee, we're going to see this coming to a head in the next election where the food industry is going to uh, uh, go after uh, the governor and uh, the legislature for passing the uh, bill this year, signing the bill, which creates the council that uh, regulates fast food now in California, which means higher wages. And in California, going to complicate life if you're McDonald's or Burger King and so forth. So we'll see that showdown on the ballot. Um, uh, the big takeaway I got from Prop 30 was that um, the governor was – it was a big win for the governor because make no mistake, he went on TV, he ran very hard, demonized Lyft, and Democrats – followed in line with him. Uh, if you're going to get deep in the weeds with the initiative, uh, somebody missing an action, a group uh, really missing an action with the Sierra Club, which did not <clears throat> jump in here. And that's a bit of a surprise because part of the, uh, besides just doing electric vehicles, this initiative also promised to send money for wildfire uh, containment. Uh, but the Sierra Club apparently had problems with this because they thought that was maybe part of wildfire containment might be deforestation and God forbid we kill a tree for the Sierra Club, and so they stayed out of it. Uh, so it created confusion. So in there, the governor comes in and very strongly runs against it. Um, by the way, a word on Prop uh, 27. Uh, it is uh, historically awful in this regard. The last time I checked, it is under 20% in terms of support, and that is a rarefied climb when it comes to California initiatives. Um, I did a little homework on this. There are only two other initiatives in modern times that have been under 20%, uh, one of which was uh, Prop 68 back in 2004, which uh, would have required uh, Indian casinos to pay 25% of proceeds to the government. So here again, we have Indian casinos involved in another 
fight because Prop 27 was about uh, the gaming tribes trying to keep uh, out-of-state gambling concerns coming in and doing online sports betting. Uh, and then the other under-20 uh, finisher was Prop 185 uh, from back in 1984. It would have increased the uh, gasoline sales tax, uh, familiar thought, uh, by 4%. It also got skunked. Um, but, Lee, it is interesting to see the governor picked a fight with Lee, with Lyft, and this round goes to the governor. Yeah, yeah, and um, Bill, I think, was very politically expedient for him. He he guessed to demonize Lyft, who I think spent nearly $50 million on, right. on Prop 30, um, which I think was close to 90, 95%, 97% of the total amount mm-hmm. spent to support the proposition. So he gets to demonize Lyft. Uh, he gets to come out against corporate welfare. So that all looks good for him. It's also politically expedient because Prop 30 would raise the state's top marginal income tax rate. I believe, what was it, 16.3%? percent 16.3%. This is for people making over $2 million in California. So it's part of the mystery of this issue because we're talking about a very small group of Californians. 43,000 Californians, I think, make over $2 million a year. So it's not like you were kind of damaging the, you know, a massive portion of the California electorate. So you know, you take that, you take pushing buttons on the environment, electric vehicles, you add in wildfires. I mean, you you kind of cooked up a soup there for Californians to lap up, but they didn't buy it. No, no, they didn't. And interesting, Bill, you know, of those forty-three thousand, uh, those forty-three thousand tax returns. I mean, several of those are in the billionaire class, and several of those are Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom supporters. When we think about the wealth in Silicon Valley that tends to vote Democrat, um, I think they're pretty happy. I think they're pretty happy that it's going down, and I think Gavin Newsom is pretty happy that those billionaire supporters of his are pretty happy. So, Lee, there is um, a, there is a question here, though, Lee, and if you're not going to pass. Prop thirty, uh, prop yeah, prop thirty, and raise taxes and use the proceeds to help fund electric vehicle mandates. Where's the money coming from? Well, yeah, where's the money coming from? And you know, ironically, um, you know, this is what happens when you go Rube Goldberg, which California right. does uh, to the T. So, Lyft, the rideshare company, spends fifty million dollars to support this because California's Air Resource Board which has just enormous power, I mean, just remarkably enormous power for a politically appointed committee, decided that rideshare companies, that 90% of those vehicles should be electric by the year 2030. Why did they decide that? Because they just thought they, they, they just thought they decided that. It was not up to any vote. There was no good economic reason for doing this. It was, it's frankly, it's a stupid regulation. And so this pushes Lyft into the political realm of saying, we've got, I've got, we've got to get all our drivers into EVs. EVs are really expensive. How do we get them into EVs? These are typically people who are driving for Lyft typically are not high income people. How do we get those people into EVs? Okay, well, Prop 30, you know, there's going to be money around for environmental concerns for climate change. Maybe some of that will indirectly come to our drivers in some way or another. So the failure of Prop 30 can really be traced back to a really bad regulation made by California Air Resources Board. And, you know, at some level, the Democratic Party has got to be kicking themselves right now because they... They very indirectly shot themselves in the foot. They want to raise taxes on high income, high wealth taxpayers. They know where that's they know where the money is and they always try to go after it. And this time, you know, this time they failed. And it's um it's a kind of I would say it's a double win for Gavin Newsom. It really establishes just how important he is in, among the Democratic Party in the state. 
just how much people listen to him. And I think he comes out able to say, hey, you know what? I'm the most I'm the most pro-climate change governor in the country, but we can't have political carve-outs. We've got to have integrity. We have to do this right. And people people are buying that. So this this yeah. I think this is this is a big political one for Newsom. Yeah, and another uh, really three three good things happened. Newsom on election night, um, the, the Prop Thirty was one. Obviously, getting reelected the second and the third, he was uh, very much the public face for Proposition One, which was the uh, top of the ballot, and that was to uh, ratify abortion in the Constitution of California. Not necessarily because uh, abortion is already the law of the land in California. Thank thank you, Ronald Reagan, for doing that as governor. Ironically, um, so Newsom had a good election night, though. I think looking down the road, we can get into this if you want to. I think um, it actually was not a good election night in terms of his president central aspirations, but he is, you know, he's the king of California right now. And you know, his minions listen to him and they voted accordingly. So there you are. There, there you are. Uh, and Bill, interesting. I'd love to hear your opinion. Gavin came out and I believe he did TV ads for yes. Prop 1, didn't he? Um, yep. Now, there was never, there's never any question that Prop 1 was not going to pass count. Right. I mean, it, it, was, it would have taken an it would have taken an earthquake on voting day to hit <laughs> to hit all the heavily blue districts to stop Prop One for passing. So now you've got these TV ads out there where where Newsom is extolling the virtues of Prop One, and and not to get into the politics of uh, of what's really a difficult issue, but if he wants to think about if he wants to think about national public office, um, are these TV ads going to come back to bite him? Uh, the Prop Thirty ads or the Prop, prop? Yeah, the the Prop the Prop One ads? No, I don't think so, Lee, uh, because he made himself very much the uh, the public face of one of the narratives of the election, which was Democrats talking about abortion rights being under threat post Dobbs. Uh, now, very cynically in California, as I mentioned, because abortion is a law of the land, it's not like abortion is a jump ball in California. This is about turning out the Democratic vote. Uh, but it did really kind of was a pivot for him for national politics in terms of saying, look it, here I am supporting abortion rights. And so we go. But shall we talk about Gavin Newsom's future? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I've got a bit of a counterintuitive take on Gavin Newsom's future in this regard. Yes, he got his way on Prop 30. Yes, Prop 1 passed. And yes, he was returned to office for another four years. But he did not have a good night in this regard. Uh, number one, um, you look at Democrats right now, uh, you know, in House races down there, about six House races out there, which are going to decide the House of Representatives ultimately. And Newsom didn't really do much uh, of his own in terms of trying to move those votes. In other words, he didn't go down a campaign of those districts. He didn't funnel much money. He did raise about $6 million, but that's kind of chump change in California politics. He didn't really make it a priority to get involved with congressional races. Instead, he was on TV starring in the Prop 30 ads. And so he didn't he didn't try to move the needle in the House races. Um, second, if you compare him to DeSantis, uh, what happened in Florida election night, um, something transformational happened in Florida on Tuesday night and that Florida has become a Republican state now. It's beginning of the century. Florida was the ultimate battleground state, but I think a smart Democratic candidate in 2024 is going to decide that, you know, I'd love to have the 30 electoral votes there, but it's just not there because you just look at the numbers, Republicans now outnumber Democrats in Florida. DeSantis got about the same percentage as Newsom, but if you look at the uh, registration votes, it's much narrower in Florida than it is in California, where it's Republicans, uh, Democrats, a two to one advantage. Uh, nobody wrote on Wednesday morning that Gavin Newsom is the future of the Democratic Party, as they did with Ron DeSantis. But here's where I think the governor had a, had a bad night. <clears throat> 
Gavin Newsom spent a lot of time in the walk up to this election complaining about Democratic messaging, talking about his party being adrift, talking about his party being timid, talking about his party, in essence, about about you know, to get a severe beatdown because it basically is not fighting the good fight. And what happened on Tuesday night was just the opposite. The Democrats didn't get the beatdown they expected. There was not chaos in the congressional side. Uh, people are not clamoring for Joe Biden's head on a stick at this hour, but I think his 2024 campaign is problematic anyway. The point of this is that Gavin Newsom's best scenario for running in 2024 is a Democratic meltdown. People saying it's time to move on and look for a fresh face, and there he is out in California. He didn't get that on Tuesday night. And so in that regard, I think he didn't have a good election night. No, he didn't. Um, and you know, going back to the idea that um, he, no matter what he did, he was going to get he was going to get sixty yep. percent, and he's not getting. And he maybe he maybe he gets to sixty percent. Yep. He could throw spitballs at people and still get sixty percent. He didn't. He didn't expand his cause. And I, Bill, I agree with you. DeSantis is viewed as a transformational governor who is making a big difference in, in Florida for, 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 for people irrespective of their political preferences. And that's, that's a big reason why he got elected. Gavin Newsom is, um, he's pushing against Republican narratives, but there's a big difference between doing that and then delivering for your constituents. Yeah. And California remains a state of haves and have nots with nearly 14 million people living in, at the poverty line or near the poverty line, that's over a third of the population. You don't see that, you don't see that in Florida. Mm-hmm. You see electricity prices in California that are probably double what they are in, um, in Florida. You see gasoline prices are probably 40% higher in California than what they are in Florida. You see public school spending, we're now spending about $500,000 per K through 12 classroom. Mm-hmm. Imagine spending half a million dollars per year and getting learning outcomes in which two thirds of our kids are not at grade level reading, two thirds, and where um, the median Hispanic and Black student, which represents over 60% of the kids in K through 12, the median kid is barely, barely five grades, five grade levels behind in math. Right. Florida, Florida doesn't have Florida doesn't have that issue. So Newsom is um, is running a lot on. Hey, I don't. Hey, the Democratic Party's got mixed up messaging. Hey, I'm standing up here against Republican narratives and talking points. But when it comes time to deliver, that's what's that that that's where Gavin's going to come up short. Um, should 2024 present itself for him that way? Now, Newsom and DeSantis have one thing in common, Lee and Jonathan. They have to wait on somebody else in their party to decide what he is doing. Uh, in the Republicans' case, this is Donald Trump. Uh, we're recording this on the 11th. Donald Trump is supposed to make a big announcement uh, on November 15th. He was also supposed to make a big announcement on the night before the election. Uh, so Trump could announce he's running for president uh, Tuesday of next week. He could just be shunning us all and telling us that, uh, instead of eight dollars for a blue check, you get to, you know you get a blue check on Truth Social for four dollars. He could just be jerking us around. But the point is, if you're DeSantis, you've got to wait and see what Trump is going to do. At the same time, DeSantis is also at the mercy of his own calendar. I think Florida's uh, budget league goes until April, and so I think about May is when he could jump in. But he has to see what Trump does. But if Trump doesn't run, then there is DeSantis who will be the be the odds-on favorite. 
Newsom is now at the mercy of Joe Biden making up his mind. And if it had been getting back to my previous rant about uh, about election night, it had been a bad night for Joe Biden. Uh, the clock would be ticking on him making a announcement about his future. He wouldn't do it this week, but he'd do it probably pretty early in 2023 to give Democrats a fair shot to figure out their field. Uh, Trump's uh, the people inside the Biden White House right now probably feel pretty good about having dodged a bullet, though they did. They probably will lose the House. Um, they probably still think he's going to run again. And so they can just drag this process out through 2023 if they want to. He could announce he could wait until the fall of 2023 to announce that he's running for another term. He freezes the field. So if you're Gavin Newsom and you do harbor presidential ambitions, how do you play out your 2023? Well, you do have a day job, so you have to tend to California business. But how do you go around the country and give speeches and kind of show leg like you want to be a presidential candidate, but not actually do it and look like you're making life complicated for the president? And there's one other wrinkle to this, uh, and that is Kamala Harris, fellow Californian, the vice president, uh, kind of missing in this election, by the way, but that's another story in itself. Uh, Doug Emhoff, who is her husband, the second gentleman, he has been going around Democratic fundraisers in the past couple months and making it very clear that the road to the White House, assuming Joe Biden doesn't run, goes through her. And that's kind of a message to the Newsom world saying that, you know, we're out here and we plan to run. So in addition to kind of waiting out the president, Gavin Newsom once again has to figure how to get around Kamala Harris because it's complicated. It's complicated given her geography. It's complicated given her race. It's complicated given her gender. So how does he keep himself in the national spotlight without looking too ambitious, without looking like he's trying to throw someone else under the bus? Very, very delicate act for him. Yeah, that's the tightrope he's walking. And Bill, when you mentioned it, that it wasn't a particularly good election night for Gavin Newsom, um, I'll follow up with that and say it wasn't a particularly good election night for Donald Trump. Yes, off, you think? Off, you think? <laughs> <laughs> off, off a lot of off a lot of his supported candidates went down, um, and, and and ones ones in which you would think that given the opposition, they should have been able they should they should have been able to win quite mm-hmm. easily. Um, so I don't know. I mean, kind of reading the tea leaves, um, Biden's announcement from I think was it was it this week or or last week? I can't I can't remember the timing where he said something like that he still plans on running, but he'll make a final decision next year, early next year, so early twenty twenty three. Okay, I never really. Obviously, he had to say early on that he was going to be running. Um, but that statement caught me a little surprised because it was very qualified. The old, oh, let me, I'll have to, I'll have to consult with my family and we'll make the best decision and uh, you know, in our interest. Um, that sounds to me like he's going to take a victory lap and say, I saved this from a, I saved this from a red wave in the midterms. And I'll sail off in the sunset. That's what it sounds. That's what it sounds like to me. That could be. There's one very uh, ugly poll number sitting out there for him. I think it was the Wall Street Journal's exit poll from the uh, from election day. Sixty seven percent of people surveyed said they do not want Joe Biden to run for another term. Uh, then again, sixty eight percent said they don't want Donald Trump to run for another term. So there you are. Uh, one final thought on the governor on election night, where I would give him a very big demerit. He did not get involved in the Los Angeles mayor's race, which was ultimately Democrat Rick Caruso versus. Democrat Karen Bass. And he was asked, why is he not taking sides in this? He said, well, because they're both really great people. I like them both. Well, Leah Jonathan, I can tell you that is a cop out of the highest order in politics. Who just The choices are both so great, I can't decide what to do. Um, inside baseball here, um, the Caruso campaign is run by a Democratic consultant named A. Smith, who is also uh, a Newsom consultant as well. So perhaps what Smith did was 
said, well, I understand that you can't support uh, you know, Caruso publicly, um, so just you know, stay out of it. Uh, but why would he not support Karen Bass? Well, maybe because he understands that the status quo uh, is not working in Los Angeles. You don't want to be sided with it. I think what Newsom looked at here, though, was that you had in the Caruso race, you had a very wealthy white billionaire running against a Democratic, a black Democratic woman, a fixture of Los Angeles politics, Karen Bass. Again, if Gavin Newsom has national aspirations, if he were to oppose Karen Bass, and she would lose that race and somehow say, well, Gavin's support really helped you know, turn the tide for Rick Caruso. That's going to land on the radar of Jim Clyburn, who is, of course, the highly respected uh, black congressman from South Carolina, who is something of a kingmaker in uh, Democratic presidential politics, as we saw with Joe Biden in 2020. So, again, this is where things get complicated. Lee, the tightrope that you like to talk about. Um, the easy choice there probably would have been Caruso. Um, because Caruso is kind of, you know, talking technocratic like Gavin and wants to solve issues like Gavin. Um, and again, he comes from a wealth class that Gavin's very familiar with, but that would have meant turning his back on the Los Angeles power establishment. So it's the choices aren't always easy if you're the governor of California. No, no, he had to, no, Gavin had to walk away from that one. And he seems to have been able to walk away fairly quietly. Uh, There's absolutely no way he could go against Karen Bass. Um, and the only chance for Los Angeles, and I'll put a qualifier in that, because the LA mayor is a relatively weak mayor in terms of in terms of what he or she can do and what they can't do with a, you know with the city council that's sort of all over these districts and a very difficult to manage school district. And you know, there's just the list goes on. Uh, I'm, I'm still shocked. <laughs> I'm still shocked that Caruso was willing to spend a hundred million dollars. To, to have that job. I, I think if it was me, I think I'd probably pay someone not to have to be mayor of LA. Um, but really, Caruso, I think, represents the only possibility that things can get better in LA. We're just homelessness. I mean, you know, I, I can't think of one item that voters would really care about that's going well within LA. Homelessness is awful. Home prices and trying to build new housing to reduce housing prices, awful. School performance, awful. Crime, awful. You go down the list and it is just not a pretty picture. Um, I just don't, you know, Karen Bass, as you mentioned, Bill has been around forever. Um, She's part of the establishment. And because she's part of the establishment, um, I don't think things will ever improve uh, if Bass or anyone else within the Democratic establishment were to be elected. Um, What's the, uh, what's the, do you you happen to know the number, the, the latest numbers on what's going on with LA Mayor? I do exactly. So as of Wednesday, Lee, uh, uh, Caruso had a lead of about 12,000 votes. And, you know, this keeps changing because votes keep rolling in. Uh, The last time I checked, uh, the lead is down to, I think, 2,700 votes for Caruso. So it's trending against him and that doesn't bode well. But this could play out days and weeks. Los Angeles County updates every Tuesday and Thursday. And they keep ominously saying we'll announce once we have all the votes counted. So who knows when, but kind of a sad sign of the times and that rather than the media, you know, focusing, say, on where the governor is this race, the heat was directed at Katy Perry, the singer who, who endorsed Caruso a couple of days before the election. And all hell broke loose for her because Caruso is Catholic and um, he is uh, he was portrayed by Bass as not sufficiently pro-choice. And so the world came down on her for saying, how can you support? this hideous human being because he's not really pro-choice and so you know which really matters more gavin newsom's endorsement or katie perry's <laughs> yeah and, and bill you know there's uh i mean there's a backstory with the mayor's race in that there was the uh, you know the near total meltdown of the uh, la city council it was now about a month ago 
in which um, two or three Latino, Latina city council members, including the chair of the council, uh, Nuri, now I'm forgetting her last name, Nuri, um, were caught, you know, were, were, were recorded, uh, you know, being extremely belligerent. Um, I don't remember if, uh, if, if specific racist language was used um, against uh, African-Americans, but it was incredibly damaging. Um, these are people, I, th I think either all or most have resigned from the city council. Yeah. Biden came out and said that he thought they should resign from the city council. This set up, um, you know, potentially enormous conflict between Af the, you know, African-American voters uh, and, you know, how they view um, Latinos and Latinas um, who might who, who might be in charge of their districts. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's another very delicate issue uh, that I think was going to hurt Bass. So we'll see if it ultimately does. And that, um, and that it could push, could push Latino uh, Hispanic support um, to Caruso. Um, I don't know in terms of, you know, where, where, where the votes, where the remaining votes are going to be counted where they're coming from, um, you know, largely Hispanic districts or or not. If they if they're coming from largely, if the remaining votes are coming from largely Hispanic districts, then maybe things will play out well for Caruso. Yes, uh, Nori Martinez is her name, by the way. Nori Martinez, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just people can Google that, and uh, it was it was horrific. It was just horrific. And, and again, it's 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 another it's another um, snapshot into just how awful uh, politics has become in California. And just how remarkably deficient politicians are now at trying to create ironically inclusive solutions to real tragic, horrendous economic problems, social problems within Los Angeles, homelessness, educational outcomes, crime. This all gets swept under the rug for what appears to be, you know, remarkably selfish reasons among yep. among city council people who uh, who got caught with their pants down. Mm -hmm. uh, to your point about um, upending the uh, power establishment in California, um, uh, and a related note, in the San Jose mayor race, um, San Jose City Council member Matt Mahon has a narrow lead over Santa Clara County Supervisor Cindy Chavez. Uh, with a total of $5.1 million doled out from PACs, it's one of the most expensive campaigns in the city's history, as reports the San Jose Spotlight. Um, some of that support is coming out of state. Uh, the biggest support for Chavez is coming from labor and police unions and the San Francisco 49ers of all places. And a large proportion of the Mahan support is coming from a uh, big tech. Uh, now, Mahan and Rick Caruso, which you which you all spoke about earlier, are the outsiders when it comes to the types of interests that influence um, governance in large democratic uh, cities in the state. If Caruso and Mahan both win, could they change uh, the political status quo? I think uh, Caruso will find himself in a position <clears throat> much like uh, Richard Reardon was when he uh, became mayor of Los Angeles uh, in the uh, early to mid 1990s, almost 30 years ago, and that Reardon quickly realized that, as Lee mentioned, it's a weak constitutional office. You have no control over the school district, for example. So Reardon went to the ballot trying to strengthen the mayor's office and got shot down as a result. So Caruso is probably going to have to have a showdown as well in terms of Los Angeles and giving himself more power. He might have to take more of his own money and put into an issue 
relationships is what Arnold Schwarzenegger discovered when he became governor of California. There's always so much the status quo is willing to bend in his way, the legislature. And so he decided to have a showdown with them at the ballot over several measures and he lost. But still, that's what Crusoe is looking at. Mahan's interesting in this regard. Uh, San Jose doesn't get much attention, Lee and Jonathan, as it should. Uh, it's kind of the overlooked metropolis of California, if we will. We just always focus on LA and San Francisco. We're, we'll get, we're guilty of that on California in mind as well, because, well, those two cities are easy pickings, aren't they, at the end of the day? But San Jose is worth noting because you do have in Cindy Chavez, somebody who's very much beholden to labor, and she's very much out of the Democratic establishment. Uh, Mahan, as you mentioned, is also an incumbent, but if you just look at him in appearance, he looks like a tech bro. He's got kind of the, the tech look going for him. He has tech support, and so he has kind of positioned himself as an outsider. And so, again, the question is what he can do as an quasi-outsider, if you will, running a city like San Jose as he opened to think outside the box. And in that regard, that's kind of a positive for California because if California is going to change its ways, uh, clearly it's not going to happen in Sacramento. It's not going to happen at the statewide level. It's going to have to, the innovation, the incubation is going to happen down at the city level, Lee. Yeah, Bill, Bill um, agree 100%. Mahan, uh, I, I find really fascinating candidate. He he came from a relatively poor background. Um I remember, I remember reading about him that he um, that he used to ride the bus several hours a day. He grew up in, I think he was in a, um, a farming community, at Watsonville, um, south of Silicon Valley. But he went to high school up in Silicon Valley because he got a scholarship there. And uh, you know, small town boy makes good. He became very successful creating businesses within Silicon Valley. Um, he sort of knows how to run a business. He understands just how derelict <laughs> are. Our ability to build housing is he campaigned on the promise that you know something we've talked about a number of times. You know why, why does it cost so much to build housing once the government gets involved? You know we talked about how San Francisco is renovating six hundred square foot one bedroom apartments for one point one million dollars. Hey, are, are the toilets gold? Are the te- toilets all the gold? Kind of question comes up. You know, so he's 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 gone after that, which he which he, he which I bought him for. He's gone after essentially a kind of common sense use of public funds within policing, within fire. Um, he's got a vision for San Jose that I think makes a lot of sense when it comes to just the Pure Economics Association. But what's happened is that because he's kind of going after, hey, it shouldn't cost this much to build housing, um, you know, organized labor is against him, of course, because in San Jose, on one of those public housing uh, projects, um, you know, plumbers are getting paid probably $175 an hour. Um, electricians are getting paid under $75 an hour. It's good work if you can get it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Bella, I love your point about, you know, Go back to what was it? Tip O'Neill who said, "Hey, all politics is local." Yeah, and and so that's where we should expect to see the changes coming from. As as voters get really, really upset, and they get really, really upset with their local politicians, that that's when we'll see if they're going to make uh, be making the be making the changes that that we hope to see. Yeah, final note on that. Um, whereas uh, the vote is trending away from Crusoe in Los Angeles, it's actually trending in Mahan's uh, favor in San Jose, but still a lot of votes to count there. So who knows? You could have one or two innovators in office. You could have one. You could have none. We'll just see, depending on when, if ever, California fish- finishes its vote count. Yeah, certainly. Mahan was politically astute. He is not, you know, wh- whether whether people tried or not, I don't think he's being perceived as the white guy billionaire trying to buy himself into political office as to the nearly to the same extent that Caruso is being portrayed as the billionaire white guy trying to buy his way. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, gentlemen, let's talk a little bit about um, secession. Uh, in, San, in San Bernardino County, uh, voters are narrowly in favor of a symbolic initiative, Measure EE, to secede from California. Uh, you, Lee, you recently joined Chris Eliza on CNN's Downside Up podcast. Just got what would what would it look like should California, on the whole, secede from the union? Uh, you, you're, you're quoted as saying this would be a divorce. It could be a very expensive divorce. Uh, these ideas are a reminder of billionaire venture capitalist Tim Draper's Six States Initiative. Gentlemen, hypothetically, if any of the instances should ever happen, how would it shape California's uh, relationship with the rest of the country? And maybe you can talk specifically about a full, uh, full-on California secession, and what that means for trade, taxes, uh, building up, uh, building up a military, and um, other matters of policy. Lee, yeah. Um, well, Jonathan, I, you know, about a month or so ago, I got this email from CNN asking me if I would participate in what they call these. Um, they, you know, they they, they kind of go after these fantasy topics. The one they came up with this time was, "What would happen if California seceded?" So, um, yeah. So I, I did an interview with them about this. Uh, and of course, this is pie in the sky, but it um, it does bear on some interesting issues vis-a-vis California and the rest of the country. Um, one is that California, in terms of the tax dollars that California send to the federal government compared to the revenue and the payments that come back from the federal government of California, California is on the relative low end of that stick among all the other states. If California was to receive the um, the median contribution relative to what they pay in, the median contribution of the you know so the median state, California would be getting about an extra one hundred and fifty billion dollars per year, which 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 is for this year's bloated state budget that would be about half the state half the state budget. Two years ago, it would have been um, it would have been about three quarters of the state budget. So, California has reason to complain when it comes to how much they pay in versus how much they get back from the feds. Um, one issue, one really interesting and important issue for California um, is immigration, and it's not so much um, it's not so, it's really the economics of highly skilled immigration. So. You know, Bill, you're living in Silicon Valley. You're living in an area where um, where we see all these remarkable startups, and chances are they are being founded by an immigrant. They are being founded by a person who may have gotten a PhD in computer science or electrical engineering or software software development from Stanford or MIT or Caltech. Um, when we look at entrepreneurship in this country, an awful lot of that is done by remarkably skilled immigrants. I think California would love to be able to design new immigration policies that made it much easier for highly skilled individuals to be able to settle here and create new businesses, because that's what California has been particularly good at. Our immigration laws are, are 40 plus years old. Most of the immigration, most of the legal immigration that's permitted in this country is for family reasons. It's not for economic reasons. There's an awful lot of brilliant, really highly skilled people who would love to be in America and start businesses and create economic opportunities. Um, you know, about half of the current Fortune 500 was founded by an immigrant or the child of an immigrant. So that, you know, that just goes to tell you just how important immigrants are for our economy. 
Um, and California is really, really suffering from, from, from the lack, from the inability of us to be able to expand highly skilled immigration, entrepreneurial immigrants. So that's one issue I spoke about at length during this interview. Um, and then, you know, as you go further down um, kind of fantasy avenue, issues like secession involve things like, hey, you know, we have, we, we have to have a military uh, to, to defend ourselves. Um, you know, so these are all some of the issues that uh, that I spoke about. Yeah, um, I, I, I took two, two questions for you here, Lee. We're talking about California becoming a nation of itself, not not breaking up as Tim Draper wanted to do into various smaller states, but a nation unto right. itself, right? So question number one, Lee, is what would the tax structure look like in California? What would, what would the California federal tax resemble? Do you think it would be on a par with the rest of the nation where California have much Monaco like taxes. Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, well, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Excuse, excuse me, I meant Scandinavian like taxes. I should not Monaco yeah, tax yeah. haven, but yeah, how, how yeah. would California tax itself? Yeah, um, it would look a lot more like Scandinavia than it would look like Texas or Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, you know, California already has a, a very skewed tax system at the state level, so we would probably expect to see more of that. Um, you know, one issue that came up in the interview is that. You know, as a country, California is a separate country. California would probably try to emulate something like the European Union, where there's you know relative free travel of people and goods across across borders. Um, but you know, that's kind of a two-edged sword because if California's taxes aren't competitive, which they aren't now. If California's regulatory burdens aren't competitive, they aren't now. Businesses and people will leave as they, as they are doing right now. So California really would need to up their game in terms of making it a more attractive and more accessible place to do business. You tapped in the other area, which I want to get into, which is how would California possibly defend itself? Back when I worked for Pete Wilson in the 90s, he used to joke about maybe California should break away. And then he would always pause and say, well, it was a, it was a good idea until they until they did base closures. Because uh, if you just if California just become a breakaway nation, you would have had just all sorts of military installations right away. Um, but the other question would be, Lee, if California is its own federal institution, what about entitlements and what about you know Social Security and Medicaid, Medicaid and Medicare and all these things, which are vast portions of the federal budget? How would California design its own system? And oh. again, where, where would the money come from? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, th- I think my opening remark during this interview is that it was going to be a very, very expensive divorce. And one reason being <laughs> that... One reason being is that, um, hey, you know, what do we do about Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all the other longstanding social legal arrangements that California has with, you know, with the other 49, the other 49 states? Um, Those would be uh, the subject of years, um, perhaps decades long negotiations uh, that would all have to that would all have to be resolved. Um, it would be remarkably messy and complicated and complex, um, and one that I don't think anyone would really look, really look forward to, other than other than the attorneys who would be <laughs> who would be working twenty four seven to deal with this so, stuff. So this would not be Tom and Giselle, where things are done in about thirty seconds. It looked like with the prenup and each having assets, but uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, would, think about- I wonder was it, was that because the prenups were so well done, or or uh, or yeah. some other reason? Um, that is remarkable. I, I saw that headline. Was that today or yesterday? Um, yeah. Remarkable. Yeah combination of very airtight prenups and I think both willing to move on and both having huge piles of money. So there's just really no vindictiveness. Uh, whereas in California, you know, home to 
home to divorce all the time. It'd be a messy divorce. You're right. But, you know, th- I think the thing to understand here, Lee, is that uh, when it comes to secession or efforts to, you know, break up California, uh, it is really kind of our state's uh, tire, tire fire, if you will, you know, kind of go the uh, dumpster fire. It just never goes out. Uh, if you go back to the ni- late 1930s, early 1940s, the good people living north in for northernmost California wanted to create a breakaway state called Jefferson. And they got very serious about it in 1941, and then along came Pearl Harbor and World War II, and they decided, no, probably not a good idea to move this thing forward right now. Uh, if you go into the 1980s, there was a lot of talk about breaking California in half, you know, just kind of literally doing a Mason-Dixon line in California. Uh, the aforementioned Mr. Draper uh, made two runs at this in terms of he wanted to first break up California into three pieces, uh, then into six states, and that gets really complicated. Lee, I, I, I've written about this. I think you have, too, in terms of what you do with, you know, shared resources. The UC and CSU systems become really complicated. If if Leo Hanian is living in Los Angeles, he wants to go to Berkeley. Those are different states, so he has to pay out-of-state tuition to Berkeley, and on it goes. But again, it's the dumpster fire because here we have voters in San Bernardino County on Tuesday night voting on something called Measure Double E. And what would Measure Double E do? It's a symbolic measure that starts the process of that county seceding from California. So the sentiment is still out there in various drips and drabs. Uh, so on we go. Yeah, it, it is. And Bill, you know, for a long time, these tensions were about North versus South. Yep. Um, and then, and then, and, and now you, you talked, you talked about how that evolved into three states and now six states, because now the, you know, the, the North South tensions are still very much there. A lot of that is related to agricultural issues. A lot of it is related to water issues, a lot more water in, nor- in the North, um, but the South uses an awful lot of water with Southern agriculture. So those tensions remain. And then there's, uh, you know, there's more tensions now related to, you know, coastal California, particularly politically and interior California, where people tend to be much more conservative politically. So anyway, you cut it, we're, uh, we're stuck with each other. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, as this evolves, I think, you know, one looks at California and says, you know, it really, really is too big. And there really are so many differences that it probably, right. you know, may always be difficult to govern here. Yeah. Uh, you know, the San Bernardino vote was interesting, Lee, in this regard. You talk about, say, creating the state of Jefferson. That's people, again, who live in northernmost California, and they just feel like the rest of the state is out of touch with them. And so this is the, you know, this is what drove the recall against uh, Newsom originally. This was the idea the state is too liberal, be it abortion, guns, you know, homelessness, you name it. But San Bernardino County is kind of a different animal in this regard. State Countywide, it votes Democratic, um, but it's not deep blue. It's kind of light blue. But then you go inside races inside the county, the congressional races, and they both go left and right at the same time. So it's a bit of a hybrid operation. And yet I looked at the votes uh, right before the podcast. It's ahead about 50.86%. It's a marginal less than 4,000 votes. So it could go under. But it just shows you, again, even in something of a purplish county in California, there is still the sentiment that there's something wrong about this state. Yeah, there's something wrong, and and, um, and interestingly, um, I think there may be some agreement across political lines about what's wrong. You know, again, we go back about housing issues, education issues, crime, uh, cost of living. Um, you know, and Bill, now that you bring it up, um, in terms, yeah, have we we haven't talked yet about um, other state races. Did you, um, you know, I've. Uh, 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 um, District Three is the Sacramento area where Kevin Kiley um, was running. Kevin Kevin was um, um, you know very aggressive, very smart uh, right. member of the uh, of the Assembly Republican. Um, 
at the last I saw, I think he was up around 53, 47, 54, 46. Um, is that, is that when, you know, I've been watching that because I've chatted with him quite a bit. I, I, I think he, I think he, he could really move the needle, um, uh, for California in the house, should he be elected? Um, is, is that is that when is that when you followed you followed much? Yeah, so um, I'm looking at this hour at the following races in California. I'm looking at California three. That's the uh, Kylie race that you mentioned. I'm looking at California thirteen, which is an open seat. Uh, I'm looking at the twenty uh, second, which is uh, David Valdeo, which is interesting because he uh, has been booted before. Then he's come back again. He voted for Trump impeachment, so he's kind of an interesting uh, window into how toxic that is in terms of being a vote. I'm looking at the twenty seventh district, which is Mike Garcia, who is the Republican. Uh, uh, congressman who broke through uh, a couple years ago. Um, and I'm also looking at the uh, 41st, which is uh, Ken Calvert, a long-term incumbent, then the 45th, which is Michelle Steele, uh, I think running for her second term, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, here is the problem that Mr. Kiley has and uh, these other Republicans right now, unless they have very generous leads, they're in trouble. And why is that? Because these votes keep rolling in and the votes move Democratic as the votes count. And this is a frustration if you live in California. I think it's kind of what disorients uh, Republicans nationwide as well. Um, you see results on election night. You think, OK, this was over. But then you find out that there are a lot of votes still to be counted and the votes ticket in California. They tick in one party's direction and it both frustrates you as a Republican. It probably makes some people want to go to the dark side and think, think that the things uh, the fix is in. Uh, but, you know, in the case of Aldeo, for example, it's fascinating. He in 2018 uh, he led his Democratic challenger by eight points on election night, and then the mail count trickled in, and he ended up losing. And right now, he is about eight points ahead, so that could be deja vu. So anyway, for Mr. Kiley and these other Republicans, they're kind of hanging on a thread right now, depending on where these unaccounted votes go. And you know, here for all we talk about California being largely irrelevant, uh, here California is very relevant because if the Democrats do have any window, any avenue to retaining the House, they're going to have to sweep these races. And so the House could hang in the balance. I think Republicans have 211 seats at this hour, uh, seven shy. We're going to have to sit here and wait for California's votes to come in. And that's going to take days and weeks and the better part of a month because of California's incredibly complicated system of voting where people get ballots early, but they dump them off on election day. You can provisionally vote. You can register on the same day. Things have to be checked by hand. They have to be double and triple counted sometime. And Lee and Jonathan, in a society that is built upon one thing, and that is speed, California is the antithesis of speed when it comes to vote counting. Yeah, yeah. California's molasses. Yeah, You know, when I vote, I, I, I still like to walk into the local church. I, you know, I'm old. That's the way I've always done it. <laughs> and uh, it is just remarkable. Just, I mean, Literally nothing has changed. Well, I, still, I'm, the opposite, I'm the opposite, Lee. I like to vote by mail because it's efficient. And no offense, I'm an old person now too, but I just don't like to stand and vote and wait while somebody is standing at the booth and reading every friggin' measure and taking forever. Come on, people, time is short. I'm the same way in the grocery store, by the way. I, I now do self-checkout because I just could not stand standing in line. Uh, but here's the problem. We've taken a system, Lee and Jonathan, that was about – First of all, it started as a public health concern. Back in 2020, we changed the rules in California for statewide voting that every registered voter gets a ballot. And why? We had a health problem at the time, and there were legitimate concerns about being able to go to vote in person with COVID, either getting COVID when you went to the polls, or if you had COVID, just people didn't want to go out and vote. And so it was best for democracy to give everybody a ballot. Democratic powers to be looked at, and they thought, 
hmm, this works very well for us because why? Everybody gets a ballot, and guess what? Since there are twice as many Democrats in California and there are Republicans, in theory, the more people to vote, the better for us. So now we have showered the state with ballots. But here's the problem. It's not like a generation ago where if I gave Leo Hanian an absentee ballot, he would vote early because he was going overseas for two weeks and wouldn't be around. Leo Hanian will now take his ballot and he'll drop it off on election day, which is not how it's supposed to work. He's supposed to mail it in early, not later. And so there you are. I'm not sure what the fix here is because you can also argue the other extreme. Well, if you vote early, then, you know, you hear this in Pennsylvania, for example, where people voted about 30 percent of the vote there was done early before the Senate debate where um, Mr. Fetterman went out and just had a rather remarkably scary performance. But yet votes were already cast for him. So what can you do? Uh, But we have to find some way around the system. I don't think it's going to change anytime soon because one party controls the levers of power in California. And the system as it is right now, quite flawed that it is, happens to work very well to that party's advantage. Yeah, um, agree 100 percent. You know, as I look at the California Republican Party, I just keep thinking that um, that for the party to become relevant at some level, Trump has, you know, for better or for worse, people have different opinions about him. But I think just from a functional point of view, I don't see California Republican Party really having much of a chance until until he goes away, uh, whether on his um, own choice or for someone else's choice. Um Given what happened on election night, given his age, given that his popularity has got, and I know it's broad, I know there's a lot of people still support him, but I think it seems like there's fewer every day. Do you have any thoughts about where that might go next, you know, over the next, over the next year and whether, um, I personally think DeSantis is, if I was a betting man, I would, I would bet on him for 24, Um, but where, where, where do you potentially see the politics of this going with Trump? Uh, if you're asking me to read Donald Trump's mind, <laughs> this will be a very brief podcast because I'm not sure anyone can figure out Donald Trump's next move. I'm not sure Trump has it figured out either, but I do know this, Lee and Jonathan. Um, the question is, are Republicans about to go through what they went through in 2015 or 2016 with Trump, where he announces he takes all sorts of positions that Republicans deem as toxic, and ultimately he prevails. And how does he prevail? Well, number one, he prevails because of the way the Republican system is lined up, where you run in primaries and caucuses and winner-take-all votes. And so you may get 35 40% of the vote, but you get all the delegates. And so if Republicans were serious about stopping Trump, that would be step number one. You would change how you do the delegates because that way he could be stopped at the convention maybe if you do it that way. Secondly, you're going to need a much smaller field than you had in 2016. I thought it was very interesting that Tom Cotton, the very ambitious young senator from Arkansas, a longtime friend of the Hoover Institution. I met him at Hoover years and years ago, Lee and Jonathan, before he even ran for Congress. Um, he, Peter Berkowitz, our colleague, had taught him at Harvard, so he uh, was familiar with Hoover. He decided not to run. He announced uh, right before the election day he was not going to run. And so maybe you're going to see him much more condensed field than you saw in 2016. Um, and I think that's just the party, the powers that be, are going to have to probably line up behind one candidate, and that would obviously be DeSantis at this point. And DeSantis is going to make the calculation, Lee, that it's in his best interest to challenge Trump at this point, because DeSantis is a very young man. He's in his, I think, mid-40s. He might be like 43, 44, 45 at the most. So he could run in 2028 if he wanted to, or 2032, though I'd argue really the time for him to run is right now. Um, but you just kind of need to make it a head-to-head contest. Um, if I could redesign anything, I would blow up the primary system and I would have Florida be the first primary. 
<laughs> I would have just DeSantis run against Trump in Florida. They're both Floridians, and there that's your showdown. If DeSantis beats Trump in his home state, that's a pretty powerful message. But if Trump beats DeSantis in DeSantis' home state, that too is a strong message. But uh, I think that's what it takes. If you view Trump ultimately as a bully within the Republican Party, Lee, somebody's going to have to stand up to the bully and be willing to punch the bully, plain and simple. And by that, somebody more than like a Chris Christie or a or a governor, former governor of Maryland, Mr. Hogan or Mr. Baker from Massachusetts, somebody like DeSantis who has real standing within the Republican Party. So to be determined. But yeah, you right. You mentioned Trump had a bad night on election night and you can't argue why. And I think it's as simple as this. You just ran really flawed candidates, the likes of New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. Herschel Walker may end up being a senator for all we know, but you know he's a flawed candidate too. And these are all people kind of running as manifestations in Trump, not just getting the Trump endorsement, but also the manifestation in Trump and that they're first-time candidates. They're not really running on much in the way of policy. They're kind of running against the system and kind of saying to voters that, you know, if you're so frustrated with government, elect me. And that's not the message that voters had on Tuesday night. I think voters were looking for something more in the way of comfort food. And I, I know Trump supporters hate to hear this because they'll say squish rhino and that sort of thing. But, you know, the problem is you ultimately, at the end of the day, if you're going to gain in America and you gain statewide, you have to win independence. If you look at the exit polls coming out of this uh, vote on Tuesday, historically, the party out of power carries independence by double digits, 10, 15 points. Democrats narrowly carried independence on Tuesday night, according to exit polls. And so that, to me, is a serious wake-up call for the Republican party. So yeah, I think the Trump Act is probably worn out, but he still has this hold over Republican primaries, at least a large enough sliver of Republican primaries to win the delegates. And so the party's got to figure a way around this. But it's funny, both parties though are in the in the same boat because Democrats are going to have to decide very soon, do we cast our lot with Joe Biden or not? Because Donald Trump will be 78 years old in 2024. Joe Biden will be closing out in age 82. I think Biden turns 80 in a couple of weeks from now. So, you know, is, right. that the horse, is that the horse you want to stay on for another four years as well? And, you know, again, what a brutal vote for the American public. Just, you know, what one guy who is um, as a 67% negative with uh, voters in terms of running again, and the other one weighing in at 68%. So, <laughs> <laughs> there's one percent. Maybe it is time know? to nationalize California and choose our own president. Hail <laughs> Gavin Newsom. <laughs> you know that one. You know that one percent difference. That looks like that'll be the, the the difference maker. Well, as always, gentlemen, this has been very interesting, timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Lee and Jonathan. Thank you, fellas. Always fun. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. If you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA. And Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Ohanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroides sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.